Deceptions podcast. Let me tell you about my Annus Mirabilis, my year of wonders. It was 1665, I was 22 and a student at Cambridge University. But the Great Plague sent many into self isolation, so I left Cambridge for my home in Lincolnshire, brimming with knowledge. We're listening to a short video from the University of Cambridge, which they released at the height of the COVID pandemic lockdowns in Britain back in 2020. English mathematician and physicist Isaac Newton was in self-isolation himself during the great bubonic plagues of the 1660s. In this time, I developed my theories on calculus, the chromatic composition of white light, and the mathematics of force and gravitation. I'd forged connections with suppliers and worldwide traders who provided me with materials and information. Yet it was during this period of solitude that inspired me to reflect. This force that draws things to the Earth's centre, what is it capable of? How far does its power extend? Does it reach as high as the moon? Newton's gravitation equation now forms part of a standard education for first-year physics students. But one of the initial objections to the Newtonian model of gravitation is that it says nothing at all about how the force of gravitation comes about. It just explains that the force is there. The force is there. Mark Hadley really likes that reference. Newton had a question to answer. Why does a planet orbit the sun in roughly the same plane and in the same direction? Newton's answer, because that's the way God made the universe. This most elegant system of the sun, planets and comets could not have arisen without the design and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being, wrote Newton. And if the fixed stars are the centres of similar systems, they will all be constructed according to a similar design and subject to the dominion of the one. And so that the system of the fixed stars will not fall upon one another as a result of their gravity, he has placed them at immense distances from one another. Thanks, Producer Cayley. This answer was not good enough for fellow mathematician and scientist Gottfried Leibniz. In his philosophical essays, he wrote... For to have recourse to the decision of the author of nature is not sufficiently philosophical when there is a way of assigning proximate causes. This isn't because Leibniz didn't believe in God. He did. Sort of. But for Leibniz, one who trusts in God should expect to find no gaps in nature. We must keep seeking answers. If there's a gap in the scientific account, we don't need to attribute it to God. Rather, we might assume that our scientific task is probably not yet finished. Now, that's what Andrew Briggs, one of my guests on today's show, says as well. And he happens to be a leading scientist in quantum mechanics and nanomaterials, an area in which most would say there are still plenty of gaps in our knowledge. Our other guest is Ard Louie, who has just published new and compelling research that points to a beautiful symmetry 
in nature. He's a celebrated theoretical physicist from Oxford who believes that the elegance of the natural world and its seemingly rational order gives him more confidence that God is indeed behind it and that we should keep digging to learn the answers. Neither of these scientists at the top of their fields feels the need to prove that God exists. But both say they're going to keep seeking after the big questions of the world in full expectation that there are answers to be found and those answers will be beautiful. I'm John Dixon and this is Undeceptions. Underceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics Master Lectures, a streaming service to satisfy your curiosity and to help you understand the Bible with the world's leading Christian scholars. And you can head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash underceptions, don't forget to put that in, to get 50% off your first three months subscription with the code underceptions5050. Each episode of Underceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. This episode of Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Academics' new book, The Truth in True Crime, What Investigating Death Teaches Us About the Meaning of Life, by acclaimed cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. After years of investigating the causes behind deaths and murders, chasing leads and solving crime, Wallace decided to focus some of those same instincts on the most notable death in human history, the death of Jesus. And while a few of Wallace's cases remain open, unsolved mysteries, the death of Jesus obviously wasn't one of them. His investigation transformed him from atheist to believer. Many of us are hooked on the latest true crime podcast. I'm looking at you, my darling buff. But Wallace reckons there's more than mere entertainment to be found in some of the big murder mysteries of his career. The Truth in True Crime offers some of the lessons Wallace has learned about human nature from both his murder investigations and ancient biblical wisdom. It's a cool idea for a book. You can pre-order your copy of The Truth in True Crime by J. Warner Wallace now on Amazon, of course. Or, even better, head to zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Don't forget to write forward slash undeceptions. zondervanacademic.com forward slash undeceptions. Can you first... Um begin by telling me about your work here in the Department of Materials. I um, am the inaugural holder of the statutory chair in nanomaterials at the University of Oxford. 
And nanomaterials is just a sort of long classical word for what in Anglo-Saxon would be small stuff. So <laughs> I'm the professor of small stuff. Excellent. <laughs> and um, That's Andrew Briggs. He's an experimentalist, which basically means he's a hands-on scientist. He's got a particular interest in incorporating materials and techniques for quantum technologies in practical devices. He has more than 650 publications with over 28,000 citations. And um, what we do is we take very small objects that are so small that you can measure and control the individual quantum states. So a typical experiment for us might be to take one molecule, you can't get much smaller stuff than one molecule, and attach two wires to it and then attach that to a device, and then measure how electricity flows through the molecule, one at a, electron at a time. And when you get this small and you're looking at such delicate effects, the disruptions that you'd get from thermal agitation become significant. So we cool it down, and we cool it down to within about a 50th of a degree above absolute zero, so colder than anywhere in outer space. And it is just amazing that it's possible for us to understand and, and, and to study materials on this tiny scale and with these tiny energy levels and so on. And whole new phenomena open up, which are completely different from anything that we experience at the everyday level. Mm. So at this scale, you have an effect called quantum superposition, which essentially means that an atom can be both here and there at the same time, in a way that it's no good trying to relate it to everyday experience because we don't experience that every day. But we can routinely observe and study such effects in the laboratory. People still need help, Dad. That's why we made this. Like a satellite for deep space, but quanta. Wait, wait a minute. You're sending a signal down to the quantum realm. Turn it off. Now! That's a clip from the new Marvel Studios blockbuster Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, one of my favourite films of all time. <laughs> it hasn't even been released yet. <laughs> oh. Have you seen the first two? <laughs> Coming to cinemas in 2023. But here at Undeceptions, we get all sorts of privileges the great masses don't. Anyway, the Ant-Man superhero franchise, which my daughter Josie loves, even has a quantum physicist consultant as superhero movies attempt to incorporate scientific detail into their stories. Perhaps it's because real science is becoming increasingly like science fiction, which Mark Hadley loves. The fact is, quantum physics is pretty strange. Almost as strange as science fiction. Like what Professor Briggs was talking about. Quantum superposition is like being in two places at once. Quantum entanglement gets even stranger when particles link up no matter how far apart they are in space. There is a bit of a race to harness such phenomena into a quantum computer, which according to scientists could help address climate change and food scarcity, or just completely break the internet. At the moment, despite hundreds of millions of dollars of investment, 
quantum computers still barely function. And they've become almost mythical in pop culture, with movies portraying them as near magical devices that can bend the laws of physics and reality itself. To get us away from comic book heroes, here's what one of my favourite literary writers, Marilyn Robinson, wrote recently. With one brilliant advance after another, science burst out of the constraints of rationalism and found itself in the terrain of quantum theory, which everyone says no one understands, but which is very robust and has been put to all sorts of practical uses. Thanks, Producer Kaylee. We're making you sound even smarter today. Even smarter. It may be the case that no one yet understands what's really going on with quantum physics, but Professor Briggs says it's still mathematically explicable. It's not that spooky. When it does these things, is it still obeying, or obeying is probably the wrong word, but is it still mathematically explicable? It is, absolutely. And in fact, to a large extent, you need mathematics in order to be able to describe these things. So you can try and make analogies of quantum superposition and an even weirder phenomenon called quantum entanglement. But after a bit, the sort of life-sized analogies run out of usefulness, and then it becomes actually much more helpful to write the equations on the whiteboard and try to explain the equations, because the mathematics becomes a very, very powerful language for talking about these things. And I hate to jump straight to um, application, (laughs) but but what are the applications? Is it as simple as making small stuff is very helpful? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the applications of nanotechnology are manifold. In fact, we're enjoying them almost every day of our lives. But specifically, the quantum technologies that this kind of science opens up are now beginning to find real applications in things like sensing. So we can make sensors that are so sensitive to a change in gravitational field that if there's something different underground, you can be sensitive to that. Mm. The sort of poster boy of the uh, quantum technologies will be a quantum computer. And already people are making progress towards building fully scalable quantum computers. So little quantum computers are working And one day we may get um, really significant quantum computers operational uh, and they will be able to undertake computational tasks that are just simply never going to be feasible for a conventional supercomputer. And so machine learning becomes important here. It does. Machine learning is another thing that's all around us. At its best, machine learning is bringing fantastic benefits. So, for example, in medical diagnosis, uh, screening medical scans and so on, the machines are just brilliant at it. We, for some time in the lab, have been developing uh, machine learning for quantum technologies. And uh, the reason for that is that the, the quantum states that you want to use for the quantum technologies for quantum computing are very delicate and they're very hard to achieve. And in the devices that support them, humans can tune the devices up, but it takes humans a long time to do it. And then after a bit, they fall out of tuning. So you've got to retune them again and so on. And uh, all of that is very difficult to scale because, you know, that's all right for one, two, five qubits. By the time you get to millions of them, you can't have millions of humans each tuning a qubit. 
Fortunately, that won't be necessary because the techniques that we've developed in our lab and are now being widely used are very effective at tuning these devices faster and better than humans can. So this is another example of an area where I think the, the benefits of machine learning are huge and certainly the effectiveness has been um, now rather robustly demonstrated. Andrew is so busy with the practical applications of science that he doesn't really have much time for the old religion versus science debate, despite claiming a Christian faith for himself. I've just come from um, the Lambeth Conference, uh, which is a gathering which happens normally every 10 years of uh, Anglican bishops from around the world. And we had a whole session on um, science on the final Saturday morning of the conference. And uh, we had 560 bishops all in the same room, you know, tables of six or eight of them, uh, discussing science. Uh, and I'm just now looking at the feedback from those tables. The, the idea of conflict is scarcely relevant in the majority world. They've got much more important issues to address. You know, how can science help with issues like um, physical and mental health care? How can it help with um, vaccine hesitancy and vaccine inequity? Uh, how can it address issues of um, water security and food security? These are very important practical questions for them. I would say, you know, that it's also going to be important in the uses of, of, of things like AI and machine learning. So I think, by and large, the debate has moved on. Indeed, the debate has moved on. But, Professor Briggs says, science does have theistic assumptions built into it. Science proceeds on the supposition that nature is uniform, that it is intelligible. When we investigate the world, we don't assume it to be like random scribblings on a scrap of paper. Briggs says. In fact, he goes on, we can rephrase the statement, nature is intelligible, as saying it is as if nature were the result of an intelligent act. Faith, says Briggs, is required for science. Not necessarily faith in God, but at least a faith that there are answers to be found for the questions that science posits. We're so used to this that we forget how weird it is. We live in a comprehensible universe. Albert Einstein once commented that this is the spookiest thing of all. We are in the position, he said, of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. And again, he said, one may say the eternal mystery of the world is its comprehensibility. Many people have observed that um one of the most famous quantum physicists to recognize that was Max Planck, who said that over the entrance to the temple of science is written, you must have faith. <laughs> and uh, you, can't, you can't do science without faith. Um, actually, you can't live your life without faith. It's just not possible. Um, some people don't recognize that. So you're quite right uh, that in order to do science, you've got to have an underpinning belief that there is something to be understood. 
And you've got to have also the, the confidence that, that somehow if you take the right bite-sized problem, you will be able to make progress on it. One of the responsibilities as a, as a professor is to um, help guide doctoral students to a problem that's about the right size, that it's not so trivial that it's uh, nobody's going to be interesting in, but not so hard that they won't make any progress on it, you know. So um, you, you've got to have that confidence, and to some extent in, a, in an academic career, it's a confidence that you learn and gain by experience. Uh, and, and it proves to be well-founded. It does indeed prove to be the case that uh, there is some order in the universe. It does obey some equations. Uh, we can identify problems that, you know, at the start we don't understand them, but, but after some diligent work, sometimes we can make progress and understand them better. So all of those things have been empirically uh, verified. It's also... Um, uh, uh, a matter of historical observation that, um, as, 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 as we say in the penultimate curiosity, time and again, the kind of curiosity about the material world that eventually became science flourished in contexts in which they were asking these big questions. But it is a complex story, and it never helps to... to to pretend that a complex story is simplistic. And it is, of course, perfectly possible for someone who um, uh, does not have faith in an underpinning God to do excellent science. That's a matter of empirical observation. Of course, there are magnificent scientists who don't believe in God. And even those scientists might say that their research reveals beautiful, extraordinary things about the world. But Andrew says they're missing something. So there's one um, picture which I've been enjoying, which has got five galaxies in it. And uh, one of them, the light started out from about 30 million years ago and has been on its way that long. So since long before the first humans. And then there are four other stars in the uh, galaxies in the same picture, which are about, I think they're about 7,000, about seven times further away. So something over 200 million years the light has taken to reach us. And, you know, a, a sort of average galaxy like ours, the Milky Way, has got um, about um, 100 billion stars in it. That's roughly the same as the number of neurons in your head. There used to, one used to say there are about um, 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. I think that number's going up considerably with the new observations that are being made. Some of the pictures from the uh, James Watt telescope come from um, within less than a billion years from the start of the universe, which was probably, you know, the Big Bang is probably about 13.8 billion years ago. As you look at these things, you, I don't know what, how, what it evokes in you. I just feel, wow, this is absolutely amazing. And I, I think I would add to that, that the more science we can get our heads around, the more amazing it becomes, the more wonderful it is. Now, that sort of amazement 
uh, doesn't inevitably lead to faith. I can see that someone who has no belief in God could nevertheless find it intriguing and amazing and satisfying. But for those of us who are privileged to, to know the, the creator of it all, there's this, there's this extra degree of pleasure and enjoyment. One of Andrew's scientific heroes is James Clerk Maxwell, a 19th century physicist whose work rivals Newton and Einstein in importance, but he never became quite as famous. So I, I want you to introduce my listeners to Maxwell. They may have never heard of him, which I know is a scientific outrage, but yeah, yeah. let's pretend people have never heard of him. Why is he so important in your view? Oh, he was an amazing figure. He was someone whose influence on our lives was just as great as other people who are much better known, like Charles Darwin and so on. You're not really comparing like with like because they were in different fields, but, but, but you know, all the um, electricity we use, all the electronic technologies, all the digital technologies uh, are all designed based on Maxwell's equations. Hugely influential figure. He grew up in Galloway, in Scotland, in a house called Glenlaire. His dad made all his clothes for him, which must have looked a bit odd. His school chum's nickname for him was Dafty, but he wasn't. In his teens, he uh, wrote a paper on, um, <coughs> on um, uh, elliptic curves, double ellipsoids that you can draw. Um, he was too young to present it to the Royal Society of Edinburgh, so a friend of his dad's presented it there instead. He contributed to uh, many, many uh, fields of physics that were going on at the same time, uh, heat, viscosity of gases, thermodynamics. But uh, he, he took the first colour photograph ever. <clears throat> he developed a way of um, visualising stresses, that continued to be used, you know, right up until modern digital computers would do the job for you. But one of the things that he did was to bring together what was known about um, electricity and magnetism. And he eventually brought it together into, uh, well, the way he wrote it down was more complicated, but, but you can write it now in modern notation, the equivalent equations as four equations, and they're known as Maxwell's equations. Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism, which shows that light was electromagnetic radiation, won him the label Father of Light. And you can even buy T-shirts that read, And God Said Maxwell's Equations. And there was light, which is very cool. His work formed the basis of Einstein's later theory of general relativity. Maxwell had a strong Christian faith, but also had reservations about how that faith should play out in scientific work. He declined several invitations to join the Victoria Institute, which was founded in 1865 by a group of London evangelicals as essentially an anti-evolution organisation, speaking out against Darwin in particular. In some of his personal correspondence, Maxwell wrote about his reasons for his refusal to join the institution, which included a reluctance to link the particulars of shifting scientific thought with biblical interpretation. He wrote, I think that the results which each man arrives at in his attempts to harmonise his science with his Christianity ought not to be regarded as having any significance except to the man himself. 
and to him only for a time, and should not receive the stamp of a society. Despite these reservations, Maxwell didn't think it was necessary to divorce theology from science, or vice versa. It is the particular function of physical science, he wrote, to lead us to the confines of the incomprehensible, and to bid us to behold and receive it in faith, till such time as the mystery shall open. I think Christians whose minds are scientific are bound to study science that their view of the glory of God may be as extensive as their being is capable of. He was the inaugural professor, he was the first professor, Cavendish professor at the Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge. And uh, he uh, was responsible for the design of the laboratories. And on the entrance, there's a, an inscription. It's actually quite hard to read because it's in a, it's in a rather ornate Gothic script. And even if you can uh, work out what the script is, uh, it's in Latin. When I went to be a graduate student at the Cavendish Laboratory, it had by then outgrown the original buildings in Free School Lane in Cambridge and had moved to um, new and much, much larger buildings on the West Cambridge side. And I, uh, as a rather sort of precocious first-year graduate student, talked to the head of department, Sir Brian Pippard, and said that I thought it would be wonderful if we could have uh, the inscription. And there was a, there was a sort of blank um, panel over the entrance to the lab. I said, I thought it would go very well there. And now that not so many um, physicists read Latin every day, it might be wise to have it in English, see? And um, the inscription is um, a verse from the Psalms. It's Psalm 111, verse 2. And in the Coverdale translation, which they chose, it is, uh, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Mm. And I love that as a sort of um, motto for the science that's done in that laboratory or any other laboratory, because it's saying that what scientists are doing is finding out how God makes the world work. Mm. And it's great fun. It's yes. great pleasure in There's doing pleasure. it. <laughs> yes, yes. The word, the word for seek there, the Latin word in the Latin inscription is exquisitar, from which we get the word exquisite. Mm -hmm. I like that too. Yes. I want to quote you to yourself and then ask you to um, maybe expound the thought because it's a, it's a dense and beautiful sentence. Dear naturalism, so I guess here you're, you're questioning, you know, the, the worldview that, that many people have nowadays, that nature is all. Dear naturalism, it is impossible to know for sure that the physical world is the whole of what is. And furthermore, there is plenty of reason to suppose that it is not. For the whole world gestures onwards beyond itself. I think that's right. I think that uh, the deeper that I go into science, and I think many of my colleagues would find this too, the more I find it's fascinating in itself, it's beautiful, it's wonderful in itself, but also the more I find it calls us to something beyond itself. And one way of thinking about that that, that, that we use in, in It Keeps Me Seeking, where that quote comes from, is to think of this 
whole world as a house. And we live in the house. And we're curious people. So we want to find out all about the house. We, we measure the rooms. Um, if you're a material scientist like me, you, you want to find out what they're made of. What are the floors made of? What are the walls made of? What's the ceiling made of? How does it all work? You might have a friend with you who's a social scientist who might say, how are the different rooms used for? Which rooms are more for people to get together in? Which rooms are more for people to be private in? You might want to find out how the wiring works, how the plumbing works, especially if it goes wrong. You might want to find out how it works and try and fix it. And you can imagine that you could go on and on with great profit and great enjoyment, learning more and more about the house. Until one day you notice that the house has got windows and you can look out through the windows. You can even open the windows and, and let the warm breezes come in and the scents from the garden come in. And the windows are, are, are sort of, as it were, calling you to a world that's beyond the house. And so I don't know whether you find that helpful as a metaphor. But, but the way that you can spend all your life ch just studying the material world, subject of my professional career, or you can, if you want to respond, see how that calls you to something beyond itself and open the windows to a whole realm of existence that it needs a different kind of description, a different kind of enjoyment, a different kind of engagement from the material world that is so effectively studied by science. For Andrew, science is the study of how God makes the world work. That's what James Clerk Maxwell thought too. Sure, there are plenty of scientists who don't think that's what they're doing, but Christian scientists reckon that those who aren't Christians but practicing science are still doing the same thing, even when they don't acknowledge it. Just as it says over that door to the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, the works of the Lord are great, studied by everyone who has pleasure in them. After the break, we'll meet another scientist driven by faith-filled curiosity to seek the most profound answers to our natural world. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, corruption and conflict have plagued communities like Kindu for decades, and access to quality education as a result is scarce. Schools around Kindu, one of the poorest parts of the DRC, are often dilapidated. They lack basic essentials like books or even teachers. Anglican Aid is looking to change that. By making a tax-deductible donation to Anglican Aid, you can play a crucial role in providing the tools and resources necessary to transform children's lives. Your donation will help workers on the ground in the DRC to rebuild classrooms, supply materials for students, and offer comprehensive training for educators. Already, there's been incredible progress. Five schools have been renovated, with over 600 students enrolled and thriving. But there's still plenty to do. Please visit anglicanaid.org.au forward slash underceptions to lend your support to an organisation Buff and I have long 
trusted. Help empower children to do what we frankly take for granted, chase their dreams and build a brighter future for themselves and their communities. Go to anglicanaid.org.au forward slash undeceptions. Thank you. We are so grateful to our friends at Morling College for their support of the Undeceptions podcast. And they've just launched Morling to Go, a free series of short courses for you to explore key questions about the Christian faith, like why believe in God? That's a good one. How can a good God let bad things happen? Or simply, why Jesus? You can check out the free Morling to Go series and other study options hand-picked specifically for Undeceptions listeners. Just go to morling.edu.au forward slash Undeceptions. Morling, by the way, is spelt M-O-R-L-I-N-G dot E-D-U dot A-U forward slash Undeceptions. Now, in the New York Times article about your work, um, I think even in the headline, it it was something like a new law of nature. Have you, Ard Louis, discovered a new law of nature? Well, this is, um, (laughs) first of all, that quote didn't come from me. Um, uh, Yeah, it's probably a little bit of hyperbole. Mm -hmm. That's Professor Ard Louis, a theoretical physicist at Oxford University. Ard is particularly interested in biological physics, the behaviour of systems from single molecule machines to whole organisms, ecosystems and evolution. It's a pretty wide field. His team has recently published some really important research that Ard has been working on for 10 years. It seeks to answer the question, why does evolution favor symmetry? But I do think that what we're finding, you know, I shall be very cautious. So we've made these discoveries. I've been working on this for at least 10 years. Well, it took me 10 years before I published it is because I, it was a big, different way of thinking about things. And I was nervous that I was wrong. And there are lots of ways that you can fool yourself. And so I spent a long time and several PhD students of work trying to make sure that I dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's. It wasn't so much I was worried about what the other people would say. I was worried about whether I was wrong, because mm. it's a rather grand claim. And I think it will still take probably you know, a good while before we can say for sure this is a different, this is a new law about how evolution works. But I'm, of course, I'm the originator of it, so I'm confident enough that uh-huh. it's going to go that way, but I could be wrong. Well, yeah, but, so a, but a lot of people are... Uh, saying pleasant things about it. Yeah, people are very excited about it. So I've got yeah. lots of uh, very positive uh, feedback. And, and whether it's a new law or not, you know, I mean, maybe there will be a mathematical formula that explains this, but, but you're really talking about a tendency in nature yeah. to go for the simple and symmetrical. Yeah, I think part of this is a physicist's instinct. So when you look at biology, typically, um, it's taught a little bit like stamp collecting. Here's a lot of different things that you just see. There's patterns. The idea is it's just all contingent. You know, if you run the tape of life, you get something completely different again. Um, in physics, we tend to want to find laws that, that bring things together. And a classic example would be, you know, you have the laws of um, uh, of pressure and volume, right? If I 
decrease the volume, the pressure goes up and vice versa. So before we understood that law, we just had lots of complicated things we didn't quite understand. Then once you had that kind of supervening law, it made things a lot easier to understand. So the question is, does biology also have these kinds of emergent phenomena that once we understand them, it'll make a lot more, life will make, be a lot easier to understand, a lot less of the kind of all details and more the basic principles. Yes, the cliche is that the biologists are all into complexity and randomness and physicists are, you know, pattern-seeking machines, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Ard's research suggests that nature plays favourites. It prefers the elegance of simplicity. We see the theory around us all the time, from the repeating patterns of snowflakes or flower petals, or the right and left halves of elephants or humans. Symmetry is everywhere in nature. It's also hiding in the very structures of proteins and RNA too. There is, of course, also asymmetry in nature, but Ard's research suggests that symmetry turns up too often to be random. Something mathematically elegant is going on behind the scenes. So let's wind back and let Ard fully explain how he came to this research. So I'm a professor of theoretical physics. So physics is split between people that do experiments, that have labs, and people that do theories, basically people that write equations or use computers and I'm on that second side so my lab is my desk pen and paper blackboard yes. um, calculators and computers. and mental arithmetic and yes, all that and computers now yeah, hugely big, sometimes big giant computers yeah we spoke to Ard Louis back in season one you may remember it was an episode titled rational universe and it went into details about evolution and Christianity. We're not going to rehash all of that here, but I do want to acknowledge again that some of my listeners and co-workers don't think evolution is wholly compatible with Christian belief. So, irritation warning. The next few minutes assume the reality of evolution at a fundamental level. Now, in in the work I want to discuss, um, you are assuming evolution. Yeah. Now, most of my listeners will be assuming evolution, but some of them won't be assuming evolution. So can you tell me just very briefly, um, what is evolution as you understand it and why do you assume it in your work? Yeah, so that's actually there's no short answer to that question because evolution can mean many things to different people. It can mean something about natural history, so the, the earth is old and a long time ago, you know, organisms were simpler than more complicated animals came around, dinosaurs came, they died out, and eventually we appeared. That's natural history. Then you've got evolution that is like a um, the Darwinian evolution, which tries to explain how that change over time happened. And the most common explanation there is that there are mutations which generate new variation. And then if that new variation um, is fitter, it will eventually dominate in a population. And this process um, cause the change over time. So that's the kind of evolution that I'm looking at. But the reason I say there's actually three ways is because evolution is often also used as a kind of philosophical way of thinking about the world. The idea that a man is the product of a process that did not have him in mind, in the words of a famous biologist, um, Simpson, George Gator Simpson. So that's a kind of evolutionism, I might call it. And I think a lot of the worry that people, Christians, and in fact, non-Christians often have about evolution, is that kind of philosophical um, um, interpretation, which I think is incorrect. Mm. 
George Simpson, by the way, was an American paleontologist who wrote a book called The Meaning of Evolution way back in 1949. In it, he discussed the philosophical implications, as he saw it, of accepting evolutionary theory. And in the book, he wrote that, quote, man is the product of a random and purposeless process that never had him in mind. Well, Ard has written quite a bit about his scepticism toward using evolution as a worldview in this way. He is all for evolution as a mechanism and as natural history, but he's adamant that none of that means that human beings are random and have no purpose. Anyway, back to Ard. So I'm actually interested in the question of how do mutations generate new phenotypes? And we've seen that obviously in the pandemic, right? The COVID, sorry, the COVID pandemic, the virus was constantly mutating and changing. And when it changed, it would do slightly different things. Mm. So the mutations are random, but what it does is highly non-random and it makes you ill. Yeah, and so, so that's, I'm interested in that process. So how does that, 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 that technical process, which we see at this micro level, mm. and we think probably explains um, the change over time. So there are really two parts of evolution in this sense. There's the mutations, yeah. and then there's the selection of the mutations yeah. for fitness. Yeah. Is this entirely random? Well, so this is a good question. So to first order, the mutations are random. Second order, they're not. There are certain mutations are more likely to happen than others, but those differences are not that large. Traditionally, people have also tended to think that the things that mutations throw up are also random. And that's one of the reasons why I think people often also have difficulty with evolution. They think it's a kind of random process. Yeah, so like every possibility is generated, but nature just selects the fittest one. That's right, yeah. That's how they think of it. Yeah, and so, there, there, so evolution is a two-step process. There are these mutations that generate new phenotypes, which is a fancy word for the, 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 the properties of the organism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your children might be taller than you by some mutation. If that tall, that, and the idea would be that would be a new phenotype, if they're, if they're a taller phenotype, for example. And then the idea would be if you see a population getting taller over time, that's because taller is fitter, which really means that taller people have more children who then pass those genes on. And the idea traditionally has been that the, the first, first step just generates a kind of um, a, a fuel, but that fuel is not structured. And so I'm actually um, suspicious of that idea and I'm trying to study that first step in evolution. Well, this is, this is why we're here, because yeah. you're saying randomness isn't as random as it used to be. Exactly, so one of the things when you're thinking about this is what is evolution really doing when it randomly mutates those genes? Well, remember that you are not your DNA. Right? So just because the genes are random doesn't mean that the outcomes of those random processes are random. Let me give you a very simple biological example that can help explain this. So if you look outside in my garden, you'll see various trees. And uh, I have a walnut tree and a birch tree, and they have very different shapes. Now, interestingly, that walnut tree's shape is not encoded in like a blueprint in its DNA. There's not like a little shape of the tree, put a leaf here, put a branch there. Instead, the tree has an algorithm that basically makes leaves a certain probability, branches a certain probability. And if you run that algorithm, then you get a, that shape comes out. The birch tree has a slightly different algorithm, which gives it a kind of more, more flowing birch shape. And so there's no, there's no blueprint in DNA. It's actually an algorithm. An algorithm is a fancy word for like a computational program that's being run. And so now imagine that there is a mutation to that algorithm, okay? You might, it might be that actually a small mutation in the algorithm changes you from walnut shape to birch shape really quickly. Or it may be that it's really hard to go from walnut shape 
to birch shape. And so to understand that, you shouldn't look at the shape of the trees, but rather try to understand the algorithms. Like a simple change in algorithm is, is, for example, now double this process, make something twice as big, right? That's one little line change and a huge outcome happens. If I randomly change that program, I might see very big changes happening in certain directions and very small changes happening in other directions. So what I'm saying is the mutations are random, but the outcomes are highly non-random. And the question then is, if that's true, what direction are they non-random? That's the question I'm thinking about. Well, this relates to the concept of symmetry. Explain symmetry. I mean, I, I know what symmetry is. I, I have two arms and two legs, right? So I'm symmetrical. Yeah. Uh, my left foot is slightly bigger than my right, so maybe I'm not as symmetrical as I would like to be. Uh, but what do you mean by symmetry? Is it symmetry at the level of the algorithm or something yeah, else? That's a good, that's a good question. So actually, so our idea that we've been developing over the last few years is that if you think about these algorithms, if you think about mutations at the genes really effectively being mutations of the algorithms, then what's going to happen is if you need to evolve some kind of new um, phenotype, let's say the, the walnut tree needs to change into a more birch-like shape because the weather changes or the, 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 um, the climate changes, then what's going to happen is it's going to randomly tweak that algorithm. And the first algorithm that it finds that does the job roughly okay is the one it's going to pick. Now, let's think about symmetry. So on my, right here in my kitchen, you, you can see in the tiles on my floor and they're regularly placed. So if I say to you, come please tile my kitchen, um, it's much easier for you to say, take this pattern and repeat it n times. That's a short description. I could also tile my kitchen with every tile in a slightly different place. Okay, I'd have to like tell, give you a, a blueprint of every tile. That's a lot of information I need to give you. Now imagine that I am just randomly um, making tile assembly programs to assemble the tiles in my kitchen. I'm much more likely to find a simple program, because it's just a few lines to describe, than a long, complicated program. So that's the argument. If I randomly search in the space of tiling algorithms, so tell me, tell me how to tile your floor, I'm much more likely to find a symmetric way of doing it than a non-symmetric one. So we've looked, for example, at lots of properties in nature and seen those huge amount of symmetry there. And the question is, why is that symmetry there? We're saying, well, it's just there because it's easy to find. Yeah, so symmetry is easier than non-symmetry. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Simple as that. One of your students, you were telling me, is working on leaves. Yeah. Does this apply to it's, leaves? It does It does in, in, in a slightly more complicated way. So <laughs> leaves are, are, are the, symmetric. The simplicity is more complex in that case. But for example, I mean, this is... Um, maybe I shouldn't say this, I don't want to be scooped yet, but we, we've known for a little while that leaves in their evolutionary history are more likely to revert back to simpler leaves than to more complicated leaves. So we've been studying a model of how leaves form and basically just saying, let's, let's just mutate that model. So we're, we're, now we're making mutations to the leaf model. And what we see is the exact same pattern of reversions, but we're likely to go from a complicated shape with lots of wobbles on it to a simpler shape. Um, and so that, and actually we're getting something very close to what we see in nature, and that tells us that probably the reason why you're seeing that pattern in nature is because nature's randomly mutating the algorithms. You've started to work on one of Richard Dawkins' fun things. His was it stick morphs? Biomorphs. Biomorphs. Yeah. Little stick creatures that um, he he thought you know could illustrate how evolution works. Can you tell us 
first what he was doing with that and where your work might intersect with what he was saying. Yeah, so Richard Dawkins has a very lovely book called The Blind Watchmaker, where he tries to show the power of natural selection. And in that book, he has a model called Biomorph, which is a kind of a model for how animals develop. So you, have, you change the genes, you get different shaped animals. And so in his book, he shows that you know, if you you've use natural selection and you, you make a bunch of random animals, you, you want to make a beetle shape. You pick the one that looks close to the beetle, then you randomize that one again. You pick the best ones, you randomize those ones, you keep taking that selection. Eventually, you will get to something like a beetle shape. It's a nice example. Here's a little clip with Richard Dawkins explaining his biomorph computer program back in 1991 for the BBC. It's basically a program that features simple shapes representing plants or animals, which can be bred by clicking on them. But you could say that all engineering design, and even all art, has a certain Darwinian component. And I want to illustrate this with another computer program called Biomorphs. So can we have a volunteer to run the Biomorphs? Oh, dear, dear, dear. Right, yes, please. Uh, what's your name? Rachel. Rachel. Have you ever used a mouse before? Yes. Good. Now, there you have some Biomorphs. Try, try one of those now. What she's doing is guiding the evolution of Biomorphs the biomorphs are controlled by genes just like the arthromorphs and just like the spider webs. And they're coming up by random mutation, but the direction of the evolution is being guided by the human eye, just like the direction of breeding cabbages or dogs. But in this case, we're just looking for pure aesthetic appeal, just looking for the prettiest ones. And I think you might imagine breeding wallpaper. So it's a nice example of how natural selection might work. But what we've shown is that in that model, I don't think he didn't realize this, if I just randomly mutate them, certain shapes are a million times more likely to appear than others. And so what we've shown is that the shapes that are more likely to appear are also much more likely to be selected for. So they may not be the fittest ones, like not, it's actually the ones that appear the most frequently, which, um, and which are also the more symmetric ones, simpler ones. Those are the ones that are more likely to appear. So although he didn't realize that, his model is a lot richer than he uh, anticipated. And it's kind of fun because he's kind of seen, there's a long argument in biology between what people call structuralists, people that say there's some kind of structure to the way nature evolves, and adaptationists, people that think that natural selection adaptation explains everything. He's typically seen as the arch adaptationists. Um, but I think actually, if you look more carefully at this, particular that Blind Watchmaker book, he's much more nuanced. And you're going to eventually show him your work. I hope so. Yeah, I hope I hope he'll like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I hope he'll I'll like it. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's is his probably he himself called biomorphs his most important scientific discovery, mm. and I think it probably is. And I think hopefully we're going to show that they're much more surprising and exciting than um, he may have thought. Except you will be coming from the perspective of a sort of deep structuralist. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm coming from the opposite side at this model than he's traditionally uh, seen as. So I, when I went into the paper, I thought this would be very fun because I would show, I would use his model to show the opposite of what he's famous for. But then actually, as I, as I kind of reread his work and understood it a little bit better, I, I think he he's actually a more complicated thinker than he's often caricatured to be. I love Ard's respect for Richard Dawkins. You often hear very negative things about him nowadays, not just from Christians, but also in mainstream intellectual circles. But Ard reminds us Dawkins is first and foremost a proper scientist who has had some important things to say about the natural world. 
I almost knocked him off his bike one day when we were living in Oxford for five months. I was backing out of the driveway and saw this cyclist have to make a radical turn out of my way. And he looked at me like, what are you doing? I sheepishly looked back at him. And I thought of the headline that would follow if I'd actually hit him. Christian historian targets atheist scientist. Anyway, I'm glad I didn't hit him. What Ard Louis is saying is that his research on symmetry actually works well with and can even explain some of Dawkins' own work. The difference is Ard is pretty sure none of this points away from the reality of a creator. Now, I have to ask you, maybe this is too philosophical, why is simplicity favoured? Well, that's a very good question. So the actual formal justification for why we should pick simple arguments over complicated arguments, so Occam's razor is the name. Occam, we think, was a fellow at Merton College here, so he's a local okay. hero. Um, like a boy enti- come good? Yeah, exactly, local boy come good. It's not entirely clear whether he was or wasn't here, but- Let's just the, go with it. The most people are, are sure that he was here. <laughs> and so he famously said, that we shouldn't, you should not multiply entities without necessity. But actually, you go all back to Aristotle and all the way through history, people have said that simple theories are better than complicated ones. The idea being if you've got two explanations, pick the simpler one is more likely to be true. It's a very common philosophical move to make. It's actually fascinatingly hard to formally justify. So why is it true? Well, it seems to have worked well in science, but that doesn't explain yet why it's true. So another great philosopher, Richard Swinburne here in Oxford, has a book on simplicity where he basically says, look, it's just basic. Okay, there's no, I don't need to argue for it. It's just simply true. Mm-hmm. I'm going to assume it's true. I think that's still the best argument for it. However, and I say this argument, best general argument for why it might hold in the, in the kind of big picture philosophical arguments. But what I'm arguing here is that if you think about natural processes that are generated by algorithms, which many of the natural processes we see in nature are, not just the evolutionary ones, but many other things around us have that quality to them. Then, because if you randomly pick algorithms, you're much more likely to find a simple one than a complicated one. You're therefore much more likely to see simple things and complicated things. That's my, um, that's my stab at why it might therefore a posteriori be good to use simple Explanations. But I think simple explanations you know, are more likely to happen. If I true. if I had a box of numbers, yeah. it'd be much easier for me to just randomly throw them than for me to form a pattern of numbers. Yeah. So the pattern is simpler, but harder. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I'll illustrate what you've just done with two monkey theorems. Okay. The first monkey theorem is the infinite monkey theorem that you've probably heard of. You put a bunch of monkeys on typewriters. You wait long enough. Will they type the works of Shakespeare? The answer is. Yes, but you have to wait extraordinarily long. So let's say I've got a typewriter with 50 keys on it, and I want the type to type some phrase like, um, good morning, John Dixon. Then the first letter is G, it's 1 in 50 chance, the second letter is O, 1 in 50 chance, go all the way to the end, maybe it's 15 letters. The probability of getting that right is 1 over 50 to the power, to the power 15, because I've got to get it correct 15 times in a row. As likely as I get any other um, set of, of digits of that length right. So when you're just throwing your, your, your um, numbers on the ground, it's a bit like randomly typing on a typewriter. The probability of you seeing a nice pattern there is very small. And that's the kind of zero order way that you're thinking about this problem. This 
is a thousand monkeys working at a thousand typewriters. Soon, they'll have written the greatest novel known to man. Let's see. It was the best of times. It was the blurst of times. You stupid monkey. You shut up. If you haven't already guessed, that's a clip from The Simpsons, which is apparently still going. Is that true? I think I dropped out around season 20. Oh, there you go. 34 seasons. Something to aspire to here at Underceptions. What if instead of the monkeys typing on a typewriter, they were typing into a computer program? Okay. And you're, you see the output okay, of this computer program. You don't know what they're typing. And they're just still randomly typing. They might accidentally type print 0, 1, 500 times, which is 21 digits long. Small probability, but they might make that. And you'll suddenly see 0, 1, 0, 0, length 1,000 string very nicely ordered. So if you're looking at the output of monkeys typing onto a typewriter, then every string of a certain length will be equally likely or unlikely. But if they're typing into a computer program, there are some simple programs that can generate long outputs. And you'll see these, and they're typically ordered outputs, right? So I print 01 many times. Um, pi is a very famous number because pi is very, looks very, if you just look at the digits of pi, it looks random but I can write you an algorithm that, writes, that describes pi in just a few lines. So pi is a, if I, so you would see the monkeys every so often, pi would come out. Right? Um, and so if you look at those patterns of the monkeys typing onto a computer program, you're gonna see this bias towards simplicity. So what I'm saying is many things in our world are not just like random um, numbers thrown on the ground. They're something that comes out of some process. So the tree comes from an algorithmic process. Um, evolution is an algorithmic process. Um, our minds are using algorithmic processes, um, and many things in nature are now algorithmic processes. And therefore, if that is the case, so if the processes are algorithmic, then a bias towards simplicity will naturally emerge. And if you're, under, if you're looking at, at the, the results of such processes, then using what comes razor is a good idea. You may have heard skeptics of evolution, so Christian skeptics mainly of evolution, say that there just hasn't been enough time to get such complex things like humans and all that exists in nature today with the random process of evolution. Space is just too big and there are too many possibilities and not enough billions of years. Ard says, well, actually, the evolutionary process isn't random. And the field of options is hugely narrowed by nature's preference for simple, symmetrical solutions. It kind of supercharges the process. I find it fascinating that Ard's breakthrough does two things at once. It strengthens evolution by explaining why it's worked at such high speed, relatively speaking, and it points to the non-random elegance that is going on at the fundamental level behind evolution. It is surprising, but it shouldn't be. Contrary to the expectations of some, science and theism are peas in a pod. Intellectually speaking, they both depend on orderliness. People often say that the more science discovers, the more theism, belief in God, has to retreat. But the opposite is true. It's precisely because the universe displays rational order from the particle to the cosmos, that so many people are convinced the whole thing comes from a beautiful mind. Science could only undermine the classical reasoning for God if science stopped uncovering the deep rational order of the universe. But then, here's the problem, 
that would undermine science too, since the very premise of science is that the universe is rationally explicable. Any scientific argument against God on the basis that there isn't order in the universe would backfire on science itself. So it seems that science and theism are intimately tethered. The more order there is in the universe, the more science progresses and the more plausible God seems. I'll get out of my pulpit now and hop back into Ard's kitchen. So one of the interesting outputs of this theories is that it's that although there are many, many possibilities, these simple possibilities are quite easy to find. So actually we've looked at one very specific example, which are RNA. So you probably remember this from vaguely from ribonucleic acid. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're the, the three main molecules in your body that, that are proteins, which are kind of do all the, the work. They catalyze reaction, they turn the sugar into energy, for example. And there's DNA, which stores the information how to make the proteins. And there's RNA, which part of it does, it takes copies from the DNA and turns them into proteins. But some RNAs actually do the same job as proteins. They can, do, um, they can, they can actually help catalyze reactions, for example. So we looked at those kinds of RNAs, RNAs that do work in nature. And we discovered that um, although there's many, many, many ways of making them, of folding into shapes, the shapes that you see in nature are a tiny, tiny fraction of all the possible ones. So just for fun, I picked RNAs of length 126 for a study. Now, why 126? Well, there's four. they're made of four different um, nucleotides. So it's four to the power 126 different possible strings. So that's turns out if you made every RNA of length 126, it would weigh more than the observable universe. Everything that we can see, so let's ignore dark matter, but everything else, it would weigh more than that. Okay, so, so I, I like that. That's it's the first one that's larger than the universe. So that's an unsearchable space. Okay, you, nature cannot have ever made all of those RNAs. Yet we see certain RNAs of that length appearing again and again and again, as far as we can tell independently. And we did a study of them, of, of, of categorizing them. Although there's a very large number of sequences, we think there's about a trillion different possible shapes they can take. But nature only uses 68 of that trillion. Hmm. Yeah? And we can find all 68 of them in about a million random samples, which is tiny. Yeah? So the point is, although the space is huge, and it would take longer than the age of the universe, the universe isn't even big enough to search that space. Yeah. Um, yet, I can search just a million of them and find every shape that nature uses. And my, my theories basically make that kind of prediction as well. And so this tells the skeptical arguments that says the space is too big, it's unsearchable. This is definitely a very big pushback against that argument. Yeah. And the, the flip side, I guess, is to the atheist naturalist who really depends on everything just being completely random and every possibility having been found and we just happen to have found this. There, do you feel there's anything theological? I mean, I know it's not your concern in your work, but do you think there's any theological pushback to that? Because really you're saying it's almost like there's a computer program. Yeah. Well, so I think there's interesting, it's, um, so these natural theological arguments are always difficult. Yeah. And there's a good reason why theologians have been suspicious of them. You know, and think of Newman, one of our greatest theologians of the 19th century, Bart, right? So they, they were pretty, they're probably maybe a bit over the top in their pushback against it. Alistair McGrath here in Oxford has been trying to um, revitalize his arguments. And actually, interestingly, 
um, someone like Richard Dawkins or other atheists of that ilk are also natural theologians. Which, and what I mean is they look at the natural world and they say, this tells us something about who we are or how we should live. So my first pushback to all of that is to say, I'm also somewhat of a skeptic for natural theology. And in the evolutionary story, I can give you two ways of running it. So the one is the radical contingency argument, the idea that you know, if you rerun the tape of life again, something completely different would happen. Um, and the other one is the argu argument that if you rerun the tape of life again, something very similar to what we see would happen. So my scientific arguments are on that second side, not on the first one. But actually, if you're a, Christ a Christian or a theist, you might say, well, the nice thing about that contingency argument is God only has to do a little tweak and he controls the outcome of evolution because everything just can, can hinge on these little... And so you don't have to have God intervening at various times. You can just tweak it and then something like us could happen. And that's really, that's really amenable if you have a certain views on divine action. On the other hand, if you believe that there's a pattern to the world and you know, um, the person who actually got me interested in evolution is a Cambridge paleontologist called Simon Colway Morris, who talks a lot about convergent evolution. And convergent evolution is completely fascinating. You know, we have a camera eye, so is an octopus, evolved completely independently. Mm. So we see the same patterns appearing again and again and again in nature. That suggests that there are deep structures that are channeling us in certain ways. And Simon says something like humans is inevitable. And he says this is much more amenable to theism because if God were to create the world and want there to emerge from that world creatures that would be able to interact with him, then being able to have something like human intelligence appear is a very important part of that. So the idea was Just quickly, we went a little further with Convergence the last time I spoke with Professor Louis, back in Season 1. So we'll put links in the show notes for that ep. Plus, we will link to an interview my mates at the Centre for Public Christianity in Australia did with Simon Conway Morris on Convergence. So the idea would be, you know, if, um, take a step even further back, if God created the world, God could cre create the world all in one go. And so I've got Lego blocks here for my kids. I can make them a train and they'll be very pleased. But if I could make Lego blocks that I put into a box and I shake it and out comes a fully formed train because the patterns, the shaking makes a train, that would be infinitely cooler. I would also be very rich with my toys. <laughs> but the idea is that, um, so that if, and, and if, you, if you believe that life has been, just changed over, to, over our kind of geological history, then that, if you believe that God is behind that, then God is doing something like that shaking of the train. And then it's, it does feel to me like these deep structure arguments suggest that that tells us a little bit how God is creating something like ourselves to make us inevitable. I have to say that those arguments are difficult. Right? So that's why I pushed the other one as well yeah. to show you could run them both yeah. as natural theological arguments. And my first take is always to say, well, um, both to my atheistic friends and to my Christian friends, we should be more cautious about trying to extract meaning about our lives from these biological arguments. So do you separate your Christian life from your scientific life? Um, no, I don't. I mean, I think my Christian way of thinking about the world is a big circle in which everything else fits and science is part of that circle. So there are really fundamental facts about the way the, the fact that there is an orderly world a world that was under, that's intelligible. These, I think, only make sense if you believe there's intelligence behind the world. I think the history of science has had deep theological roots for those very reasons. So I like to remind myself of that. Um, I also think that 
part of my calling on earth at this time is to discover things about the world. So I think those are ways that I feel that my, my faith connects up. And probably it's true that I, um, because of my Christian background, but also because I'm a physicist, am much less likely to believe that evolution is just kind of one damn thing after another. I'm much more likely to believe there, can be, there are going to be beautiful patterns. So I think it's much more likely to be beautiful. Um, and that isn't a Christian instinct, perhaps, but having said that, many of my atheist colleagues also believe that the world is beautiful and use that as a guide to truth. And so, um, and the maths, maths is, is beautiful. Slowly indicating Indica this. Yeah, that's right. So there's a, the idea that the world is beautiful um, is is very common among scientists. Um, that, so that the, the, the so that scientists are often um, 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 motivated by this. So there's been some interesting sociological work on this recently that showed that in fact it correlates um, very strongly with the um, how successful scientists are how much they're driven by aesthetic um, kind of drives. So I don't want to call that a Christian motivation because many, many non-Christians have it. I do think it's, its justification, its origins are much more naturally derived in a Christian framework than they are in an atheistic framework. In an atheistic framework, it's surprising that this is true. You could say it's a posteriori, maybe there's some reason for it because it worked, but a priori it seems surprising. Yeah. And from a theistic point of view, it's not surprising at all. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. You might be thinking that the life and influence of Jesus has little relevance to science. As a first-century Galilean, of course, he had nothing direct to say about the study of the natural world. But I think it is arguable that Jesus had a massive indirect influence on the development of science. Put simply, it's widely acknowledged that the Judeo-Christian way of thinking about the world provided the conditions, the necessary conditions, for the passionate study of the natural world, and therefore what would become science. And Jesus is, of course, the reason the Judeo-Christian worldview became the dominant view in the West. There are three conditions that have to be in place to provide the best soil out of which natural science could grow. And Jesus taught all three, and then his followers took these notions wherever they went in the world. First, the creation must be viewed as orderly, rational, imbued with wisdom and elegance. That's not the pagan view. Pagan religion from Babylonia to Egypt to Gaul to England in antiquity insisted on a capricious, unruly world, and that makes science unthinkable. Science depends on mathematical elegance and rational order built into the structure of the physical universe. Now, to be clear, there were pagan exceptions. The high philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, and so on, all had moved toward an intellectual conviction that there was one reality, one great mind behind the universe. And so the physical universe was, to them, rationally explicable. We can easily accept that these philosophers, especially someone like Aristotle, were beginning to study the natural world as a rational pursuit. Now, my point is that the Jews had already believed this and operated on this assumption for centuries before the great Greek philosophers. And it was this Jewish view that Jesus passed on to his disciples and his disciples passed on to the pagan world. 
But there is another condition that fostered the scientific project, and this was less obvious even among the great Greek minds. It's the belief that the world is not only rational and therefore explicable, but it's also profoundly good, beautiful, a work of art. It is widely acknowledged in the literature of the history of science that all of the first scientists, Kepler, Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, and on and on, saw their scientific work as worship. Because a good God had produced a good creation, the study of that creation was an act of devotion. You may remember way back in episode nine of Undeceptions, we interviewed uh, Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, a historian of modern science. It was her study of the very first scientists of the modern era that began to lead her out of atheism toward Christianity. She couldn't get past the fact that these great intellects at the foundation of modern science all thought they were doing something worshipful. Their science was inspired by their faith. And there can be no doubt that Jesus was indirectly responsible for inspiring countless millions of people to love a good creation as a gift of a father who makes the sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous, as he said, who decks out the lilies of the field in their splendor. There is a third condition that inspired modern science. And this has been argued forcefully by the historian of science, Peter Harrison, who was a professor at Oxford and now at the University of Queensland. In order for modern science to take off, people had to believe that they themselves were fallen, fragile, prone to rational self-deception. Why? Because if we trust our rational capacities too much, will be content merely to observe the world and make our rational judgments about why things are the way they are. We won't stop to test our rational thoughts. This is what prevented ancient Greek science from going too far down the road toward empirical science. The Greeks firmly believed that the logos or rationality in the universe was the same logos that was in their brains. We have a capacity rationally to intuit why things are the way they are. This led to all sorts of crazy but rational speculations about the world. An example Edwin Judge gives, Edwin is one of the most famous classical historians in Australia, is of the Greek view, the very logical Greek view, that male semen, sorry to lower the tone here, was produced in the brain for the obvious reason that the brain, which they had observed, was the only internal material in the body that was the same color as semen. The Greeks did loads of this sort of pure rationalizing. They backed themselves and their intellectual prowess, their ability to rationalize the world. But what really got modern science going was a belief inspired by Christianity and Augustinian theology in particular, that even our minds are corrupted by sin. Peter Harrison points out that there was a great revival of Augustinian thought in the Middle Ages. Augustine of Hippo had really just systematized the teaching of Jesus, that every one of us is evil, to use a word he often employed in the Gospels. If you who are evil, he said, know how to give good gifts, how much more will your father give good gifts? Anyway, Harrison has shown how this idea really began to trouble the intellectuals of the Middle Ages. They'd made so much progress in rational philosophy. They'd studied the ancient classical literature. They had codified logic, rhetoric, observational astronomy, and much more. 
but they began to fear that all their speculations could be flawed, given that they were descendants of fallen Adam. The solution was to test their rational theories about the world. Only real-world testing could compensate for our propensity to get things wrong. And so was born the experiment. You'll have to read Harrison's book, The Fall of Adam and the Rise of Science, to get the details, but it's pretty clear this is how the early modern scientists expressed their empirical work. So it's true that Jesus didn't talk about science directly, but his indirect gift to the world, quite apart from his death and resurrection for our eternal forgiveness, was a worldview marked by a belief in the rationality of the universe a conviction about the goodness of creation, and a realism about the limits of our rational abilities. This is the soil that gave us science. You can press play now. If you're looking for an easy but meaningful gift for a loved one, you could give them a subscription to Undeceptions Plus. They'll get all the extras, and if you sign them up for a full year, they'll get an Undeceptions t-shirt too. We've got some great stuff planned for our Undeceivers in 2023. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to give a gift subscription. And while you're there, you might consider making a donation to help the work of Undeceptions and to ensure that we can do all those great things and more in 2023. You can click on the donate button on our website. I'm really grateful for your support. Next episode is this season's Q&A episode. Producer Kaylee has gone through all of the questions you've sent in recently and picked out some doozies. I'll do my best to answer them. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Antman Hadley. Sophie Hawkshaw is on socials and membership. Alastair Belling is a writer and researcher. Siobhan McGuinness is our online librarian. And Lindy Leveston remains my terrific assistant. Editing by Richard Humwe. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan Academic, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com. We're letting the truth out. Perceptions Podcast.